You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This is just step one in a, in a long battle um, that we will all realistically be fighting for the foreseeable future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a lawsuit that takes aim at artificial intelligence technology that generates its own computer code. I've got the story of some human rights activists opposing the Kids Online Safety Act. And later in the show, Sam Heine, who is VP of Products at Impero, on patching healthcare cybersecurity risks in the Internet of Medical Things. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. All right, Ben, we got some good stuff to uh, share this week. Why don't you start things off for us? So my article comes from the New York Times by Cade Metz in their technology section. And this is about a new type of artificial intelligence released by Microsoft earlier this year that has now led to what I think could be a very groundbreaking lawsuit. Hmm. So the way this technology works is Microsoft uh, has released and sold to a bunch of other organizations artificial intelligence technology that helps uh, programmers code. uh, Mm -hmm. And the way it works is by generating its own computer code based on a predictive algorithm. Okay. So it's called Copilot. The tool is designed to speed the work of professional programmers. Just as if you're typing an email in Outlook, it might suggest the next two or three words in the sentence based on artificial intelligence, what you've previously written, what other users have previously written. That's how this would work, uh, except with code. Hmm. This seems to be uh, something that would be convenient for people who write code for a living. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it could, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're writing thousands and thousands of lines of code, it might help um, if there's some sort of predictive technology that can make your job a little bit easier. Right. Uh, but we've run into a potential intellectual property problem. Hmm. So there's this guy named Matthew Butterick. He is a program uh, programmer, designer, writer, and lawyer in Los Angeles. Uh, man, that's a lot of things to be. I, I can only be one of those things. <laughs> uh, but he's not happy with this technology. And he, uh, with a combination of other lawyers uh, in this field, filed a lawsuit seeking to establish a class action against Microsoft and the other companies that helped design and deploy Copilot. Hmm. So 
There are a couple of uh, issues here. First, we're at the very preliminary stages of this lawsuit. They haven't even been able to establish a class yet for a class action lawsuit. Hmm. And I'm wondering if they will be able to establish a class. Usually you can find enough people who can allege a legal wrong to make a class if there's some common issue of, of law and fact. Yeah. But if Mr. Butterick is part of kind of an insular community that has problems with this type of predictive technology and it's not something that's widely uh, – it's not a view that's widely shared in the community, they might have a problem establishing a class. Hmm. So that's one potential issue here. Okay. Uh, the second is the actual cause of action is the, – the cause of action does not relate to a direct copyright claim. Hmm. Uh, and that's something that uh, makes me question the utility of this lawsuit. He's not alleging a direct copyright infringement. Instead, he's arguing that GitHub, uh, which is one of the companies that bought the software, right. uh, their terms of service uh, and privacy policies run afoul of federal law that requires companies to display copyright information when they make use of material. So it's kind of an indirect attack, alleging that um, some of the intellectual property of programmers is being used without attribution, but it's not a direct attack alleging a copyright infringement. So uh, in that sense, it's kind of more of a test lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, if you're not ready to allege a copyright infringement, you can allege kind of this more procedural uh, issue, which is that they are not divulging that they're using copyrighted uh, information. So, okay. So help me understand what, what the beef here is. Is it, So... As AI technologies work, I'm I'm guessing that uh, this system has ingested a lot of sample code. Yep, and is using that to generate the new code. That's right. And, and so is the, that the problem? Yes, that's the problem. So okay. the question is, where do you find that sample code? And what Mr. Butterick and his uh, co-plaintiffs are arguing is that there's a global community of programmers who have spent. Years, months, days, months, years uh, building this type of code right. at the heart of this type of technology. And now this code is being used uh, without any attribution, without any financial benefit to those who built it. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's a, mm, oh, go on. <laughs> yeah. So another kind of weird irony about this is Mr. Butterick is a proponent of open source technology. He's used uh, open source platforms. He's wanted to share uh, his code among the programming community. Um, but those were other human beings. There was a kind of a bit of a community there. Uh, when you share something on an open source platform, you are taking the direct action of sharing it, meaning you're kind of forfeiting your copyright claim. Right. Uh, and so I think the difference here is the predictive technology is not getting the consent of the people who actually built the code. Hmm. Uh, if they were to get consent to the people who built the code, that would take a long time and would probably cut against the utility of the software, uh, which is to cut through the process of needing to talk to programmers uh, and just it just does the programming for you yeah. uh, in an economical way. So I really think this could... It, once this case develops, it could be a groundbreaking case in uh, the general field of artificial intelligence as it relates to intellectual property um, because you are taking in the aggregate the work of people who have toiled away building these lines of code huh. uh, and it's now going to be publicly available without the consent of the people who built that code but in a way that I think – 
would be of real benefit to the broader industry. So it's just a really difficult policy problem. I don't buy it. (laughs) All right. Give (laughs) me me your skepticism. Well, so, I mean, to me, this seems like um, I'm—let me me, uh, spin up an analogy here. I'm a, a hopeful filmmaker, right? And I go out and I watch all of the films of Steven Spielberg. Twice. Mm -hmm. And then I go out and I make my own movie in the style of Steven Spielberg. Have I violated copyright? No. um, I I don't think that analogy perfectly works. As far as I know, and this, I might be wrong about this, you are a human being. Uh, (laughs) So far, yeah, evidence would support that. My wife might disagree from time to time. My my children certainly, but go on. Yeah, so there's nothing automated about it. (laughs) Right. What, you know... What, there's an old meme I used to see it on Twitter all the time. Like I, I forced a bot to watch 48 hours of Steven Spielberg films. And right. This is what he spit out. Yeah. I feel like that would be uh, more of a more of a close analogy because it is an artificial system. Well, that is, okay. So we have these these we have systems that do exactly that. So there are we have these AI uh, art generating systems where I can say. Uh, you know, draw me a teddy bear in the style of Matisse, and boom, out it comes. Is would that be a copyright violation? So, I, I'm I'm just trying to play. I understand your argument. I'm trying yeah. to play devil's advocate from yeah. the perspective of this community of programmers, right? I think there's a little bit more that goes into building line uh, lines of code than there is to co-opting the style of an artist. Yeah. Uh, the code is pretty exact. I mean, you've developed some type of functionality. The code does something. Right. With Matisse, or, or with any artist for that matter, you're kind of using a general creative style um, but it's not like Matisse had a distinct brush stroke that you're using or a distinct way of drawing a particular object that had never yet been discovered. Mm. Um, so I, I do think your analogy is pretty good, uh, but yeah. I can understand why the, the these circumstances might be a little bit different. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It seems like even uh, in its by its very nature, the AI would be derivative, right? If I so let's you know t- t- ten print hello world twenty go to ten right there's my code, um, who no one's going to lay claim to that and I understand there are there's certainly routines and and uh, b- chunks of code that someone could say I that created was me, this yeah. this innovation was mine um, I don't know I, I guess. Uh, I'm having trouble shedding my skepticism here. Just, you know, it's been a long time since I've done coding, so I'm sure my thoughts on it are, are quite out of date. But um, I, maybe I'm just missing the point that this is an exploratory lawsuit, <laughs> right? <laughs> it is an exploratory lawsuit. Uh, so the law, I think, in this area is pretty ill-defined. Yeah. Uh, and this is, I think, an effort in trying to define it. The, a court just might say there is no cause of action here. There is no, even in this weird procedural way in which this is being challenged, there's no valid copyright claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think it's possible that there is just because of the uniqueness of building a line of code and developing some type of functionality. Hmm. Um, I've tried to, just racking my own brain, I like your Matisse metaphor, I've tried to think of this uh, because I think better when I think of things in a 
uh, more analog and less digital way. Right. Uh, but think about some type of predictive technology that could write a Shakespeare play. Yeah. Uh, so you take, you know, every single word that Shakespeare has ever written, uh, you put it into an artificial intelligence whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it spits out a new Shakespeare novel. I- iambic pentameter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So what's the problem? I'm not sure that that... So, yeah, maybe you're not copying the exact words that Shakespeare wrote, but you're capturing that style. I feel like when you're doing predictive coding, you might actually be copying the exact words. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because there is a specific line of code. It has certain zeros and ones in it. Right. Um, which is different there's a, there's than— there's a limited number of ways to accomplish a particular action or, or a limited number of best ways, I suppose— to to generate uh, a result in computer code. Right. I mean, it would sort of be like uh, with a Shakespeare play, the system spitting out to be or not to be because it only read Hamlet, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what happened in that book because that was the only, those were the only words that could achieve the intended purpose in that circumstance. Sure. I am obviously no Shakespeare scholar, <laughs> as you can tell. It's too bad we're not using sports analogies. I know, I know. I'd much rather be doing that, but that's just not the way my mind was right. working this morning. Right. <laughs> so I guess to play, again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I think most people who've done programming for a living, for a living and who are programmer programmers probably think this is, this is just a nice little convenience. Yeah. Um, you know, we all use predictive technology when we're sending emails, when we're texting, uh, it predicts the words that we're going to say after we type something in. Uh, we have artificial intelligence in Gmail that can automatically respond to emails by saying, yep, sounds good, uh, mm-hmm. because that's how I usually respond to emails. Um, and I don't think anybody sees some type of copyright claim in that type of technology. I think the uniqueness about coding is that somebody's invented a way to achieve some level of functionality uh, and if that becomes the predictive line of coding in Copilot, then that really is stealing somebody's intellectual work and potentially turning it into profit. Yeah. Uh, and that would violate the spirit of our intellectual property laws. So I'm curious to see where this goes. I think it's a reasonable claim. It sounds like you're more skeptical than I am, but I think we'll both have to kind of see how this develops, see if they can even establish a, a class to yeah. let the lawsuit go forward. I guess I, I just, I, I, I wonder how can you come up with a copyright claim against something diffuse? You know, uh, they're not saying this line of code is, this, they're not saying this, this system ripped off this particular line of code that was copyrighted by this organization. They're just coming after the possibility that it could. Right. right. <laughs> it is very diffuse. Right. And my guess is for somebody to eventually have a copyright infringement cause of action, you're going to have to have somebody who developed a piece of code yeah. that made its way into this predictive technology and have that person say, I want the fruits of my own labor. Yeah. Um, and we're not, we're certainly not at that point yet. I don't even think that the person, Mr. Butterick, who's um, alleging piracy here, I don't think he's the person uh, – who's done that type of coding. I think he's the one who's organizing the lawsuit. He's a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, he um, can't help himself. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, what, what is your take on this kind of thing in general? I mean, this kind of, you know, someone decides we're going to we're gonna test, we're going to do some testing here. We're going to, 
you know, nip around the edges and see what comes out of this. Is this is this a good thing? Is this a nuisance? You know, is this productive? I hope you could hear my audible sigh. I think <laughs> in in some circumstances it can be productive uh, because you are testing novel legal theories. Right. Sometimes the only way to test them is to get your day in court. Uh-huh. The court. Our court system has ways of throwing these cases out before they would take up the time, energy, and resources of an actual federal or state court. Mm -hmm. That's what a motion to dismiss is. Um, You're going to make some law clerk do the work of writing something saying this is not a valid cause of action. But at least the judge is not going to have to uh, take his or her time considering the case. Um, So it will only actually make it into court if there is some type of legitimate Uh, cause of action. And Mm. so in that sense, I think it's okay to allow people to kind of test these theories. Um, You know, we do have these guardrails uh, in our court system. You do have to have standing. So you have to be able to allege with some level of particularity that you've been hurt by whatever action uh, you're fighting against here. And um, I think that's going to be a big obstacle in this case. Are you going to be able to find one programmer who is able uh, to allege with some level of certitude that his or her own code was adopted into this predictive technology, was used, and was used um, in a way that doesn't qualify as fair use. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's going to be a really steep hill for that person to climb. Um, And we're even far away from that step of the lawsuit. So I don't think anytime soon Copilot is going to be, you know, there's going to be an injunction uh, against Copilot. But I I do think— Sometimes there can be some use to allowing people to test legal theories in our court system. All right. Well, keep an eye on this one. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> we'll have a link to the story in the show notes. Uh, again, this comes from the New York Times. Uh, moving on to my story this week. Uh, it comes from uh, the folks over at uh, Axios. This is uh, written by Ashley Gold. Uh, and uh, the title of the article is Human Rights LGBTQ Plus Organizations Oppose Kids Online Safety Act. Now, I guess we should start off here by describing what the Kids Online Safety Act is. Uh, it is a bipartisan bill from Senators Richard Blumenthal, who's a Democrat from Connecticut, and Marsha Blackburn, who's a Republican from Tennessee. Um, after a series of hearings they had with some tech company leaders, Uh, with concerns about the platform's negative effects on children, uh, they are proposing the Kids Online Safety Act, uh, which makes uh, social media platforms do a number of things. They're supposed to uh, enable the strongest settings by default for minors to provide them with options to protect their information, and it would also require that the companies provide parents and children uh, a channel to report harms to the platform, Um, and also uh, a lot of uh, sort of parental monitoring kinds of tools. So that sounds great, right? (laughs) And if you name something the (laughs) Kids Online Safety Act, you have a pretty high bar to to, to find opposition. That's that's why they give it that title. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's bipartisan, so check. Uh, (laughs) uh, And and this is one of those things they're trying to— get through during the lame duck session here, you know, before Congress turns over. Right. So you got about a month left. Yep. Um, But there are uh, a bunch of human rights and LGBTQ plus organizations who uh, joined in and and submitted a letter to Congress 
who are opposing this bill, saying that they're, they have a number of issues with it. Um, they say that, I'm going to quote them here, they say, we believe the privacy, online safety, and digital well-being of children should be protected. However, the bill would undermine those goals by effectively forcing providers to use invasive filtering and monitoring tools, jeopardizing private secure communications, incentivizing increased data collection on children and adults, and undermining the delivery of critical services to minors by public agencies like schools. So it seems like what what they're concerned about here is particularly for older kids, so think about your 15, 16, 17-year-olds, um, who may be in one of these groups, you know, LGBTQ plus group, uh, a kid, you know, in the, in, who is in that, that uh, group of kids who's looking for information, uh, looking for resources, looking for, uh, you know, sex ed kind of stuff. And what they're saying is that this bill could make it so that uh, their parents would have to know about that and that could lead to... Uh, things like domestic violence and things like that. So I, the flip side is I'm sure there are lots of parents out there who would say, well, yeah, I, I want to know what my 15, 16, 17-year-old is looking for online. That's exactly the point of this. Right. I mean, it is a tough dilemma. I'll note that there's an interesting coalition involved in writing this letter. It's both LGBTQ plus advocacy organizations like GLAAD, but also online privacy advocates like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will say that those two different types of groups are not always on the same side of these mm. types of disputes. Interesting. Uh, this is one of those where I really understand the complaint uh, that that's reflected in this letter. Yeah. Obviously, there is a positive intention to protect uh, kids and, and their online safety. Right. Um, but you do have this problem of... People who are already part of marginalized groups who might just want to do some research mm. um, into, as you say, basic things like sexual education, you know, is being who I am okay? Are there resources that can support me? Uh, and allowing potentially at least under this legislation parents of those older kids to view that uh, information could put kids in those marginalized groups in significant danger. Yeah. Um now, it's really up to Congress to determine uh, what weighs more heavily here, the interests of the parents to always have the right, at least, to, to monitor the online content of even their older children. Right. And I think many people, as you say, would uh, assert that that, should be, that right should be absolute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are the interests of uh, people who are part of these more marginalized groups uh, who might legitimately be threatened by legislation like this. Yeah. Uh, I, in terms of the prospects of a piece of legislation like this passing in spite of this letter, mm-hmm. I still think there's a decent chance that this bill could get a- added to some sort of uh, broader piece of legislation or might pass on its own uh, right. by the time Congress adjourns at the end of the month. It does have bipartisan support. Um But because of this letter, I could see somebody like Senator Ron Wyden or maybe some other progressive Democratic uh, senators stand up and say, we're not going to agree to this bill unless there are some changes. Hmm. And maybe those changes would be via an amendment uh, that would loosen some of the age requirements. Uh, So parental notification would be required for kids up to 13 instead of up to 17. That might be one type of acceptable change. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I'm not sure that this type of letter is going to derail the bill. Um, Hmm. There are a lot of senators in both parties who are fine crossing groups like the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Right. Um, And there are at least 48 or so senators who would not mind uh, crossing the interests of GLAAD and other LGBTQ plus rights organizations. Right, right. Um, So it's hard to know what the prospects are. I I do think the complaint alleged in the letter is, is certainly valid and something for the senators to take into consideration as they consider this bill. Yeah, I think another element of this that has folks like the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, on notice is that they're concerned about things like end-to-end encryption, that this bill could uh, disable that. In in order for the parents to be able to read things, uh, have access to things, then then that can't be end-to-end encrypted. Those communications can't be end-to-end encrypted. They would have to be accessible by the parent. And there are folks who, you know, strongly believe that end-to-end encryption is uh, practically a fundamental right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, folks like the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, live and die by this idea that we can't cut against end-to-end encrypted technology because that's a slippery slope. Yeah, Uh, If the government ever has access to it or if you're giving a certain class of people access to -to end-to-end encrypted information— that could cut against people's privacy rights but also enable bad actors, mm. um, people who would uh, exploit those security flaws uh, to commit cyber crimes uh, or do other nefarious things. Yeah. So that's certainly a valid concern as well. Um, I, I do think there's a legitimate gripe here that this piece of legislation is overbroad. Um, I will say that probably would have been helpful if they had written this letter prior to the lame duck session. Hmm. Um, there might be a timing issue, uh, but I guess that's that remains to be seen. Maybe uh, they wanted to get ahead of this before this bill actually comes to the floor, gets passed with unanimous consent, um, and this, this was the time to do it in their view. What about this kind of in-between age for kids? You know, there's 15, 16, 17-year-old. When you're you're standing on the front porch of adulthood, right? Right. <laughs> you know, uh, in general, how does our legal system treat folks like that? That's a really interesting question. Um, so generally between – before the age of seven, I'm just looking at criminal law, yeah. principles from common law. Before the age of seven, you're not responsible for anything. Okay. Between seven and 14 – you uh, there's kind of a rebuttable presumption that you do bear some type of responsibility. Mm. Um, so you could have an infancy defense if you commit a crime when you're 13. Above 14, you are uh, you could certainly be charged for a crime uh, either in juvenile court or in many cases for violent crimes in an adult court. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could be charged as an adult, convicted as an adult. And they could certainly take away your rights when you are 15, 16, or 17. So you're kind of a tr- treated as an adult in that context. You're treated as an adult in, in in other contexts as well. But in some contexts, you're treated like a kid. You can't vote. Right. Uh, you're not eligible for selective service. Mm-hmm. Um, you're treated like a, a kid in the way we see sexual violence uh, protective measures. So right, right. statutory rape applies in most states 
uh, if committed against somebody 17 years of age or or younger. Uh, So it is kind of this weird in-between area where we haven't really decided if people falling into this age bracket are kids or adults. Uh, It's kind of ad hoc based on how we want to see them based on the individual circumstances involved. Yeah. which I think makes this even more complicated. Mm -hmm. Because in many ways, they are kids. Their brains haven't fully matured. um, But in many ways, they are adults in that they've developed an identity, um, you know. uh, Right. They have physical maturity in many cases. They're starting to develop physical maturity. For me, maybe I wasn't quite there at age 15 or 16, (laughs) but for uh, many kids, they have already developed physical maturity. Well, but that's part of it too, right? I mean, at that age, there's a broad spectrum of... Of development among kids, you know, you've got kids who are still, you know, four foot six and kids who are six foot two, right? Right. (laughs) And everything in between. Right. It is sort of this bizarre in between area. And it's just hard to know how the law should treat people. Yeah. You know, I I will note in other areas of online law and regulation, the cough is more like 13 years of age. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen that with regulations, for example, against Meta, the parent company of Facebook. Right. Um, they don't allow uh, unsupervised accounts under the age of 13, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it's – there are no easy answers. Right. Uh, you want to protect kids as long as you possibly can. Um, there are certain areas of the law that see these people as kids and, and um, believes that the government should protect them at, at all costs. There are areas of the law where that's not the case. Uh, I happen to think that in these circumstances, when we're talking about access to potentially life-saving information and and resources, this is one of those instances where it might make sense to treat them more like adults than than like kids. But again, my perspective um, might vary from the median perspective in this country, and I think that's something that's up to legislators to decide. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Again, that's from the folks over at Axios. We would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to discuss here on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of uh, speaking with Sam Heine. He is uh, the VP of products at a company called Impero. And our conversation focuses on healthcare cybersecurity risks, uh, and in particular, the Internet of Medical Things. Here's my conversation with Sam Heine. Over the last, I would say, decade, probably a little bit longer than that, um, we've all been aware of an increasing number of cybersecurity threats, cyber attacks, disclosures of our personal information from a variety of institutions, 
there has been an ongoing threat against our devices as we as we use more and more of those devices. And I think it, it really started to come to a head in the last couple of years as the proliferation of those devices just exploded. Um, you know, there are some estimates that there are more devices, kind of that internet of things or internet of medical things or internet of industrial things, all of these sensors and small computers, there are now more of those than there are computers and cell phones. So we've got these little embedded computers everywhere and hackers, activists, cyber uh, criminals, malcontents are targeting those devices more and more. And because we're seeing more and more of them in the healthcare industry, in healthcare facilities, they have become a, a favored target by those bad actors. I, I think it was, you know, back just even if you go back to 2017, the FDA said that one in 10 of these medical devices had vulnerabilities. And there have been some other estimates more recently, as, just as recent as 2021, that state that healthcare as an industry is the largest target for these cyber criminals compared to all industries. So hmm. when you look at that context, lots of devices, lots of criminals, um, people really coming after it. There were some senators, I, I can't remember the people who have sponsored the bill, forgive me, but hmm. it was really prudent that they started trying to elevate and escalate some of these protections that the Patch Act um, is recommending. And, and what are some of the specifics about uh, you know the medical world that make them a particular target for these bad actors? I think the easy answer is that um, medical facilities, healthcare as an industry, is a critical industry. It's super important to our daily lives. You know, there's that old joke about you ask the bank robber, you know, why, why did you why did you rob the bank? And he said, that's where the money is. Well, when you mm. think about your your life and what is valuable to you, money is pretty high up there, but so is your health. So if I really want to disrupt something, if I want to get leverage over you, if I want to um, use ransomware and I want to install that on your computer and make you pay me, I'm going to attack something that's important to you. And healthcare devices managing our very lives, that's a, that's a pretty juicy target. So if I'm a criminal and I can lock out a hospital and say, you can't treat patients because you can't access any of your systems unless you give me a million dollars. Well, unfortunately, sometimes the only thing that those hospitals can do is pay the million dollars. So it's a rich target because of how important and critical the information involved is. You know, I, I can imagine if I'm someone you know, maintaining the equipment in a hospital, you know, thinking of something uh, something that you see all over, a ho you know, an infusion pump, something like that. Um, and I have, you know, many of those at my facility and they're all working fine. Um, I can imagine the impulse to say, well, all of these are working fine. I'm not going to take them offline and, and risk upgrading them, updating them, you know, doing software updates, if you will because that may take them offline and they won't be available for a certain amount of time. I can understand that mindset, but I suppose you can't really come at it that way anymore, can you? No, and I saw a quote, and I can't remember where I saw it, so don't hold me to this, but I think it's accurate that the, a large healthcare organization or kind of larger healthcare organizations can have up to 10,000 medical devices within their facilities. And if you just think of that scale, I mean, it's just this massive number of devices. And that's just with one healthcare organization, right? That's think of a hospital, they could have 10,000 of these devices. 
Now, if, if you have to shut them all down at once and just stop servicing and stop helping uh, your patients, well, obviously, you know, you're not, you're not going to do that. Um, but if you can create a, a, a routine of upgrading, updating, patching, and maintaining your equipment, then you're already doing that today, right? I mean, you go into surgery and you, you use sterile equipment. You come out, you then sterilize it. It's just part of the process. What the Patch Act is advocating and what cybersecurity professionals are advocating is that you look at all of your medical equipment kind of in that same fashion, that as a routine part of using the equipment, you need to patch, update, and prevent cyber threats. It's, it's the same as scrubbing the floor, um, sterilizing the equipment, upgrading and patching the software. That just has to be a part of your everyday normal operating procedure. And what are some of the key elements of the Patch Act here? You know, I, I've reviewed the text and I've seen some descriptions. And um, I think the, you know, the way it's been described in a couple of articles that I've seen um, who are a little more eloquent than me are there are four big uh, planks. Device manufacturers need to first plan for addressing cybersecurity, right? They need to have a plan in place that says, here is how I address with this piece of equipment cybersecurity um, there's a lot of discretion, but being able to show the FDA and the regulators that, hey, we have thought about cybersecurity and here's how we are addressing it. The second is that you need, a, you need to be able to provide to, um, to regulators a software bill of materials, an SBOM. And that software bill of materials is really a listing. It's a, a detailed list of all the components that go into that equipment. So if you think of a computer, computers running software, right? I'm, I'm looking at a, a Windows device, and within Windows, there's lots of different libraries and binaries and all sorts of bits and pieces. The software bill of materials just lists it all out. It says, okay, we're running Windows, and it uses this free software library. You have this application installed. Part of that application is this other kind of hidden application from a different vendor, you want to surface all of those bits and pieces in the software bill of materials so that you have full visibility and you, you don't have any surprises, right? So first, have a plan. Second, make sure you've got visibility on the device in the software bill of materials. The third part is to really monitor for vulnerabilities. So if you put a piece of hardware, if you put a medical device out onto the market, you need to be monitoring what are the threats to that device and have a plan for addressing any vulnerabilities that you find. So if I need to upgrade my operating system, if it's using um, you know, some version of Linux, a, a, a proprietary version of Linux, and a vulnerability is discovered, I need to be able to document and show how will I upgrade that operating system and get that vulnerability fixed. And then finally, another big piece of this is the idea of a coordinated vulnerability disclosure. Um, I actually wrote that here in my notes, so I wouldn't say it incorrectly. The, <laughs> the coordinated vulnerability disclosure, I mean, this is something in the software world. It's if you find that there is a flaw, if you find that there is a vulnerability, you need to document it and you need to disclose it. And so having the regulatory and kind of the, the oomph coming from Congress saying, this is something you have to do, gives a little bit more motivation to vendors, to hardware suppliers, to software suppliers to say, I'm looking for these problems. And when I find them, I'm going to tell people so they can fix them. So that vulnerability disclosure is an important part 
of making sure that everyone gets out there and fixes it and patches their equipment. Yeah, it's certainly noteworthy that this is a bipartisan effort. Uh, you know, we, we, the, the the Senate to the Congress being the way that it is right now, uh, that is uh, <laughs> just, just sort of being miraculous. Um, what is industry's response to this? Are, are they on board? Is, has, is there any significant pushback that you've heard of? You know, I, I, there are always going to be grumblings from device manufacturers who have new requirements placed on them. And, um, mm. and this will, for some device manufacturers, be a little burdensome. Um, and you will have, I would imagine, and, and I talk with a variety of different device manufacturers who, who again, they, they really want clarity Right, they really want it to be clear. What is the requirement? When do I have to do it so that they can plan accordingly? Um, this is a bill that is in, you know, kind of hasn't been approved. It hasn't been voted on. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? So, any of that, you know, when things aren't for sure, when you can't make a plan, um, there's always going to be grumbling from from the industry providers. But I'll tell you that even the the most jaded and the most um, whoever you are, whatever product you're supplying. If it's in the healthcare world, these vendors want to keep people safe. That's that's you know, they're corporate profiteers who just want to make money. But the people I've been working with and most of the manufacturers, they're putting out insulin pumps and you know blood gas analyzers and X-ray machines because they they're honestly trying to make the world a better place and help people. And they want cybersecurity to be included. Having more guidance, having more regulation, there might be some grumbling, but I think people will get on board pretty quickly, especially since. Large industry, you know, like the healthcare providers, the hospital, the American Hospital Association, the you know American Medical Association, they're all throwing their weight behind this. So, the device manufacturers will get in line. Hmm. Do you have any sense for what kind of timeline we might be on with this? You know that that unfortunately is outside of my area of expertise. Um, hmm. I think the last I saw, um, uh, it was in committee. Um, and so I, I, I just I haven't been tracking that well enough, and and I just like I said I don't have the expertise to 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 read those tea leaves. I am hopeful. I mean I support the Patch Act. I think it's a necessary step. Um, it's not a silver bullet. You know, industry is going to do more, need to do more. Device manufacturers going to need to do more. Healthcare providers can't can't just rest on the if this passes. Say oh well we got the Patch Act, everything's fine. And this is just step one in a in a long battle. Um, that will we will all realistically be fighting for the foreseeable future. Ben, what do you think? It was really interesting. I actually went and looked at the piece of legislation that you guys discussed, the yeah. Patch Act. It hasn't gotten past the committee process, and we're almost at the end of this congressional session. So it's one of those things that more likely than not, the legislation is going to be DOA. I, I think it could be reintroduced in the next session. And one thing that was interesting about the interview is it seems like there's some level of acceptance, even among industry folks, um, that because we're dealing with things like medical devices, which contain personal, uh, in, extremely personal information, uh, some information that has monetary value, it's worthy of these extra layers of protection. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought it was an, an interesting interview. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Sam Heine for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time.
And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com cyberwire. our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>